0: Hey there, this is Andrew, and I'm going to talk to you about how to uh, prepare and play Adaptive Keyforge in a way that I think will help your chances of success. Um, I'll talk initially about just what Adaptive is, walk you through some of that, and then uh, go through how to prepare and bring stuff that'll give you a good chance at winning, and... follow that up with how to actually perform well during the event itself Um, but you know remember to keep it fun Um, I think adaptive if you're playing full adaptive certainly can be kind of a best of three formats are are long and can be tiring but I think can also be really fun and rewarding so just keep that in mind and um, you know it's not not for everybody but I, I really love adaptive I think one of the reasons I love adaptive so much is that it gives opportunities to even learn something about your own decks. Uh, It gives me the opportunity to learn things about my own decks that I didn't see on my own that maybe somebody else picks up on something interesting and uh, yeah it's a lot of fun. So okay what is adaptive? Uh, Adaptive is a best-of-three format in Keyforge. By best-of-three what I mean is Your plan is to play three games and one player or the other needs to win two games in order to win. Now if they win game one and game two, that's it, that's fine, it's over, but if one player wins game one and the other player wins game two, then a third game will be played to determine the overall match winner. Game one in an adaptive match is played like solo. And I didn't say Archon console here because you can play Sealed Adaptive, and I think Sealed Adaptive is a really fantastic way to uh, experience and explore the game, especially uh, when a new set comes out and you're trying to get to know new stuff. Or if you were joining the game fresh, uh, I think playing Sealed Adaptive would be just a fantastic way to play around and, and learn new things and get to see how the other person uh interacts with those things as well. So that's why I didn't put Archon Solo here because uh, adaptive actually works fantastic for sealed as well. But anyway, uh, game one is like solo. you Each person plays the deck that they brought. And then game two is like reversal. You play what your opponent brought. Um, so there's a, a mirror fairness there, right? If, if uh, you bring a better deck than me, then that gives you an advantage in game one but it gives me an advantage in game two and at that point it's possible that one player won both games and that person has a 2-0 record in the match so they've they've won the best of three at that point we don't need to play game three Uh, at that point the the match is over the person who won game one and two just wins however if that's not the case if the player record is 1-1 then that means that the same deck won both games. One of the decks is 2-0 and the other deck is 0-2 but the people are 1-1. So at that point the players bid chains for the 2-0 deck, the deck that won both games and the person who brought that deck automatically starts bidding as 0 chains. So for example uh, if you brought the deck that won 2-0 you would, and you're playing against me, you would start bidding zero chains. You do not have the option to go higher than that. And then I could say, oh, I'll actually bid three chains. Maybe you say, well, I'll bid five. Uh, and then if I say pass, then you would get to play your deck in game three that you brought, And but you would start the game with five chains. Maybe i say, no, no, I'll, I'll bid six. And then you say, okay, I pass. Well, then I would play the deck you brought in game three. Game three would be a repeat of the reversal match but with me starting with six chains, whatever I had bid. So, uh, but bidding does just keep going until one person or the other passes, at which point uh, you can start the match with the player with the higher bid, playing the 2o deck and starting with the chains that they bid. And those chains serve as a balancing mechanism, right? If If one of us brought a deck that's much better than the other, yeah, we're probably going to go 1-1 in games 1 and 2, but in game 3 it's going to be balanced based on our evaluation of how many chains we think it's worth to bid. So it's a very uh, player-driven balancing in that sense. Now some people have uh, have issues with it. It's certainly not perfect but I think it's a pretty good system. And then the outcome of game three determines the match. Um, There are some interesting notes I could put in here as far as like tiebreaker rules and blah 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 if games go to time but this is not what I'm going to go into now. So now let me cover the big picture of adaptive strategy. These are the things we want to keep in mind as we're thinking about improving our chances of winning. The first concept that I want to claim, I want to, the first thing I want to claim is just that it's better to win 2-0. For a lot of reasons if you can win 2-0 you, you're just much better off uh, obviously winning is, is feels nice um, but uh, when you go into that third game there's a possibility that you take the deck for the the 2o deck for chains and then get a low roll right so that's a risk there's there is um, one of the the major criticisms that I've seen leveraged against chains as a balancing mechanism is that uh, they can increase variance. I think uh, Aurora is the person who has advanced that concept, and I, and I think uh, I think it's true. So, although I don't I don't uh, I don't take that then to say chains are not a good balancing mechanism. I just think that is definitely a an aspect of it that we have to live with. So, uh, if you're playing with high chains, then you could get a low roll, you could get a high roll, and that could be more of a determining factor even than it would be at normal draw levels. So if you go to uh, game three there's a chance that you have a chained low roll or that your opponent has a high roll. Uh, I once took a deck for 19 chains and then uh, got daughter in my opening hand and uh, proceeded to, to win largely because my opponent didn't have a way to deal with the daughter for several turns. Um, but the, the other thing here is if you're doing like a, an event an adaptive event that can go very long uh, six rounds of adaptive can can mean 18 games total but if you cut that down to 12 by you know getting 20 wins that gives you more time to rest you know play some casual games in between or eat or whatever you need um, and it's just going to decrease your your mental fatigue Um, but remember that you don't control what your opponent brings, so you should always be prepared for going to that third game and bidding. So we do want to cover that, but it is nice if we can get a 2-0 win. And then the third concept here is, uh, don't rely on your opponent making mistakes. I, uh, there are some strategies that people employ that kind of assume, okay, maybe I can get my opponent to over bid on chains or, or under bid or make a, wrong commitment. And those are good things to try for. I mean, if you have a bidding strategy that might uh, get your opponent to make a mistake, um, as long as it's, you know, within the bounds of fairness, I think that's that's awesome. Um, and you might win a game based on that. But don't, you can't rely on it. That can't be your only strategy. You, you have to always assume you're going to be playing people that are uh, as smart as you, as experienced as you, and um, And that, uh, or or even that might be smarter than you in many ways. That's, you know, I, again, part of what I love about this whole adaptive thing, other formats too, but especially adaptive, is oftentimes I'll be surprised by an opponent doing something I didn't think about or um, that teaches me. So just, I think that in general, if you're relying on your opponent to make a suboptimal choice in order to win, uh, that's... Not good. <laughs> you you need to assume your opponent's going to be doing great, and you need to just outperform them. Okay, so those are kind of our general principles that we're going to be applying here. Now uh, let's get into the nitty gritty of selecting a deck. Because I, some people say that selecting a deck is not important for adaptive, but I disagree, and I'm going to explain why. So. The first uh, principle that I'm going to share as far as deck choice is that you need to bring a familiar deck. You want to bring a deck that you have a lot of experience with. And um, I, th- I think most people do agree with this. And I'll I'll show you, um, this is made up math, but uh, bear with me here. If we imagine that uh, I bring a deck that is at... That has power level 100. I'm not using SAS here so don't don't think about SAS. If I bring a deck that's like 100 points of value and you bring a deck that's 110 points of value But I'm more familiar with my deck and so I'm playing it at 85% efficiency while you're playing your better deck at 75% efficiency Then it actually comes out to I'm getting 85 points of value and you're getting 83 points of value. That's actually not a big difference Um, So, with you playing your deck at lower efficiency, even though your deck is better, that gap is significantly uh, ameliorated or or, or abridged by me having more uh, efficiency with my deck. Uh, You know, assuming I've played with it more or or whatever. Um, So, being confident and skilled with the deck really can compensate for difference in the deck and then if we just assume we're each playing the other person's deck in reversal at half efficiency well now I have a slight advantage there maybe even a slight advantage in in game one because I am just more experienced with my deck and that gives me a shot at getting a 2-0 win now let's assume that the the values are bigger and the difference between the decks is bigger and your deck is uh, 150 while mine is 100 well now you're gonna come out ahead in game 1 you have a significant advantage there although this is only a 27-point advantage whereas the advantage that I'm getting a reversal is a 25-point advantage um, you know so uh, so there you are yeah, you are getting yourself into a, a good situation there by bringing the better deck. Um, but I'm making the gap smaller by having that that efficiency on my own deck. It's giving me a little bit of a chance. Um, and that affects... One way I think about this is if we imagine that five points is worth one chain, which it's not... That's not right. But if we just imagine there's some you know ratio between chains and points here, then... Uh, then playing in reversal, I have a 25, uh, point advantage, pl- which means, uh, you could, uh, I could take your deck for five chains and have the game be even. And you have a 27 point advantage, which, uh, in solo, which would mean that you could take the deck for five, maybe six chains. Well, that, that gives a pretty tight spread. Whereas if, uh, you know, if I had lower efficiency here, that would mean that you ultimately could go higher on the chains to take your deck. But if we have it in that tight range of, you know, I could take your deck for five, you could take your deck for five or six, then that actually puts me in, in reasonable position for, uh, for bidding chains. So anyway, it's always better to just increase this number. Um, if you can get up to 90, 95, 100, um, obviously there's no real, okay, exact way to measure this, but, um, but I certainly think there are decks out there that are getting played, uh, way under their what they could do because people haven't spent the time, uh, on them. So anyway, bringing a, a deck that you're familiar with, that you have a lot of reps with increases your, uh, skill multiplier, we'll call this in the, in the math. Okay. Bring a weird deck. Um, so... This is, uh, I think this is one of the really important things about deck selection, and I don't think this is very controversial either. I've never had anybody argue very strongly about this, Um, but I will refer back to that don't expect your opponent, don't bank on your opponent making mistakes. You can bring a weird deck and still have your opponent know how to play it well, Um, and I'll talk even about how you can increase your chances of playing your opponent's weird deck well, but... I do think by bringing a weird deck you increase the chances that someone will make a misplay. Um so uh, uh there's a couple concepts here about bringing a weird deck. One uh, or things that I could mean here by uh, by bringing a weird deck. One is um bringing a deck that just plays differently than people are used to. So I had a deck that I was using for adapter for a while that is is very good. It's it's um SAS rating is very high. It's uh, 89 SAS, but with only 9.5 expected amber. And so that that really low expected amber, it, it has some uh, 7 pips and just needs to have creatures on the board and reap, and it has ways to do that. But it certainly doesn't autopilot. Um, it does not play itself. So you have to really think about what turns you're taking. Um, there's often times that you have to You have like two or even three good options for houses and you have to choose which is the best option to maximize. Um, And that's hard because people are not used to having so much decision space and people some people uh, are not used to, for example, having a a re-based engine so um, So that could throw some people off. Um, I also think you can get a lot of value out of bringing uh, weird cards. So Cards like Soul Snatcher really change the math in the game. Um, Crassosaurus is a card that in most decks that it's in is bad. But if you have a deck where it's good, then people sometimes struggle to, to realize that it's good. um even discard it where they should have kept it or something like that. So... Um, Crassosaurus, I think, can be a a really good one. Uh, There are others, too, that aren't on here. Curiosaurus really uh, makes people have to think in ways that they don't necessarily want to. And so when people are playing... uh, When you're in the reversal match, or the reversal game, people may uh, discard or play these cards when they shouldn't, when they should have done the other. And um, so playing cards that are just a little weird to people. Sometimes I think bringing uh, a set that people aren't used to playing, like a lot of people... Who are used to playing Archon solo, uh, maybe don't have a good AoA deck, and so bringing a, a a deck from set two, Age of Ascension, that has cards that they haven't played with a lot, um, could also just throw people off. So there, there are a number of ways to do this, but I think having cards that people aren't used to is really helpful. Whirlpool also just really changes things, and there are some decks with Whirlpool that shouldn't play it, so or it can be very matchup dependent. Um, so all these are are cards that just uh make people think harder, increase what's going in uh increase the size of of uh what's going on and what people have to keep track of and those are really good for opening up opportunities for an opponent to make an, a mistake. Um yeah, so I think bring bring a weird deck. And then this is the the one that I've had some people push back on um but I really uh, this this is the, if I bring, if I leave uh, any mark on competitive keyboard strategy theory, um, maybe it'll be this, that I think in adaptive you, ne- you are better off if you bring a good deck. Um, and one principle there I'll say is it's better to win game one than to win game two if you're only going to win one of those. Um, but let me show you the math here. So here's, we sh- showed you situations where maybe your opponent brings, a better deck than you. But here's an example where um, you know if, if I bring the better deck, um, let's say by far I bring by far the better deck. Um, obviously it's gonna be pretty hard for me to lose game one here and it's gonna be pretty hard for me to win game two. But I get a couple of advantages um, going into game three. One is that uh, I get to choose whether I go first or second and Usually in Adaptive you want to go first to maximize um, shedding chains, so uh, so I get to choose to go first, which means I can afford probably a free chain. Um, but additionally, um, if you look at the, the differences here in these numbers, in the solo game I have a 75 point advantage, whereas in the reversal game my, only, uh, my opponent only has a 50 point advantage. So, again, if we're assuming that a chain is worth 5 points, then that means that my opponent can afford to bid 10 chains, while I can afford to bid 15. But, if I know this, I don't need to actually bid 15. I probably am okay bidding 11. Because if I bid 11, well, my opponent doesn't want to go to 12, because they can really only afford 10. So they probably let me have it at 11, which means that I now have a 20 point advantage, even uh, with chains. Or maybe my opponent goes to 12. Um, Well, that means that I have a 20 point advantage. um, Or, sorry, a a 10 point advantage um, if I let them have my deck at at 12 chains. Um, Maybe they go to 14, you know. So, uh, but it it gives a space in which if I'm bidding in this space, 11 to 14, if I'm bidding 14 or below, then I get an advantage. If my opponent takes it for more than 10, then then I have an advantage, and that just puts you in a really strong position for bidding, because you, you're gonna come out ahead one way or the other. Now, let's assuming that we had, like, arbitrary um, or objective uh, ways to say exactly how many chains is good for a player, but the overall point I'm making is just that by having the better deck, you create a space However wide it ends up being, where you can afford to go and your opponent can't. Um, yeah, so I think that's um, that's my math there. Uh, okay, now we talked about by bringing a familiar deck, you increase your you, your chance of having a good multiplier in of, for skill in the archon game, and we also talked about bringing a weird deck, which I would say. Uh, increases the chance that your opponent will have a low skill multiplier in the reversal game, but there are some things you can do beyond that. Um, and this is uh, once you've chosen the deck, uh, you want to get a lot of decks uh, of reps in, obviously, and um, and that will again help you increase that your skill multiplier in the in the Archon in the solo game. Um, In Seal Adaptive that's not possible but in Archon Adaptive it it is and you should do it. Um, You also should consider getting some reps in uh, some games in with chains and bidding. Uh, You should consider doing some short adaptive uh, practice on the Crucible. Um, This is a way you can choose adaptive as a format, Adaptive Best of 1. In Adaptive Best of 1, each player, uh, instead of Normal Adaptive where um, the players are bidding for the deck that won the first two games, in Short Adaptive, the players each pick which deck they want, and if they chose differently, then they each get the deck they chose, but if they cho- if they choose the same deck, then bidding happens as, as it would uh, if that deck had won games one and two. So it's a way to get game three practice in, practice bidding, practice uh, playing with chains. You get an idea for some decks might play really well at zero chains, but have really drop off quickly as the the number of chains goes up where some decks might play under chains better than others. So this is a really good way to get some practice in there. And uh, that will just increase your chances of, of knowing how to bid well. And then the last tip I have here is to get in reps with a variety of deck archetypes because um, this, this makes you more resilient against your opponent bringing a weird deck and uh, increases your chances of having a good skill multiplier in the reversal game. Um, if, if your opponent brings, in this case, in this example, um, we're back to, you know, you're bringing a much better deck than your opponent. Um, if you have just more ability to adapt to, which is the name of the format, right? Adaptive to adapt to a weird deck than they do, then, you know, maybe you're getting much more value out of the deck and, um, and bridging that gap. And, And this is a great situation, right? If we can, if by a by player skill we can uh, increase our chances of winning that reversal game even though one deck is much better than the other then uh, that's a really good thing that's going to increase our chances of getting a 2-0 win. Um, And of course that also gives us more flexibility when we're bidding chains so it's just good all around. Uh, having reps with a variety of deck ar- archetypes is is pretty important. And I have a series that talks about some deck archetypes. It's not um, comprehensive. It doesn't cover everything. But uh, <clears throat> that could be a good way to get some thoughts about deck archetypes. But I don't think there's any real substitute for just getting out there and trying lots of different things. All right. Uh, oh, one thing I wanted to just cover... Um, back on the idea of bringing a good deck um, I have heard people multiple times push the strategy of bringing a very bad deck uh, to make sure that the game will go to game 3 and then just bid for the other person's deck on uh, yeah just bid for the other person's deck and I think the the risk again is it just puts you in a situation where if you are the person with the lower um, chain threshold because of uh, you know not being a deck that you're you you have not gotten reps in with their deck then it, it can put you at a disadvantage um and one theory uh that a good player i know has you know pushed is the idea of well yeah but i i'll bring a deck that maybe has high efficiency but just doesn't do a lot um and that could trick the opponent into thinking it's better than it really is and and letting me have their deck for too few chains or something like that and um, but I'll just refer back to I don't think that counting on your opponent making a mistake is uh, is a good long-term strategy okay okay uh, when you're actually playing in games 1 and 2 you need to pay attention uh, look for your opponent doing interesting things that you could use in game 2 um, game 1 should really be helping you prepare for game two so that you have a chance to really maximize your use of their deck. And then uh, note not just which deck won but how much it won by uh, because that could really matter in bidding. If a deck um, really trounces the other deck then maybe it's worth bidding more chains for that whereas if it was very close maybe you don't want to bid many chains. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about this and reference uh, Really, what I think is the gold standard on explaining this idea, but it really does pay to notice how big of an, a difference the outcome was. One other thing that I didn't put in the slide but thought of is that um, sometimes there are decks where, in a particular matchup, um, you could play it 10 times and all 10 games. Uh, one deck will get to two keys and the and be threatening key three, and the other deck will win, and um, and it's good to think about that too because um, getting to getting to check on key three is very different from getting key three, and and there really are situations where. Uh, one deck might seem very close but it will but it will never get over the threshold or it'll almost never get over the threshold but that's a little more advanced difficult to think about so don't stress out about it but maybe as you get more experience it's a good thing to think about okay and then uh, I would also say you need to keep a cool head um, in adaptive it's it's very common to end up one one and the the one possible disadvantage of bringing the better deck, you know, winning game one and then losing game two is that it could put you in a funk going into game three and you really don't want that. So uh, I would say as much, if you get the opportunity play a lot of best of three uh, setups and get used to the idea of getting a loss, having a low roll and still keeping your head in the game. Okay, and then let's talk about when it's time to bid. Um, I'll include a link to this, but Jason from Team ReapOut wrote a really great article a long time ago uh, explaining an, a, a chain bidding strategy based on the Amber Delta from game 1 and 2 and um, I don't it's not it won't always get you to the right answer but it's a very very good starting point and I don't, I don't think he would claim that it will always get you to the right answer but it is a very very good starting point and so I'll link to that and I really highly recommend reading it and trying it out a few times I do not actually count amber that way um, but I did for a while and it was very good practice and it helped me get a, a good feel for adaptive so I really really strongly recommend that article and then I would say uh, if you can think about whether each deck's performance was normal or, or it was out of range that's going to be helpful. Uh, I had one matchup in an event where uh, I was playing playing my deck that really likes to reap, and my opponent was playing a lower sass Brobnar deck that just controlled the board and made it very difficult. And so uh, he won game one, and then uh, partially because I low-rolled, and I recognized I kind of low-rolled. I think he might have high-rolled, Um, and he, he won game one, and then game two, uh, was very difficult. I barely eked out a win, um, that I think was mostly attributable to him not, he'd played my deck fine, but I don't think he played it as efficiently as I would've, and, um, and I'm sure I didn't play his deck as efficiently as he would've, but still, um, I I was able to make up for it and win game two, and at the end of that I thought, I... Think that actually my deck is, ha, I should has a better chance of winning, and so uh, I let him have the deck that had just gone 2-0 for zero chains, and proceeded to win game three. Um, that's that's a really extreme circumstance, but uh, I made that decision based off of um, actually I think that there was a high there was a low roll situation in game one, and uh, and I think that that's not normal. So anyway, that's just the kind of a next level to think about. And then um, and then also it's worth realizing if there's any chain mitigation in the deck that you're bidding chains on. If it has you know three daughters or something like that, then it might just get to the point very quickly where the chains don't matter as much, and you. You need to worry about that. Uh, and in the in the losing deck, there could be some chain punishing effects. Binding Irons is the obvious one. Less obvious is if it's a dark tidings deck that really wants to keep the tide high and might entice the opponent to want to lower the tide. If they already have chains, that's going to be tougher on them. So, so then they kind of end up having to choose to either slow their deck down further or let you continue getting your buoy money or whatever. So that's something to think about as well. Um, all right. So that, I think I could, oh yeah, last thing. Yeah, I think this is actually important. Um, and this I got from, part, well, I think I, I kind of did it already, but really had this idea bolstered in my mind uh, by reading a book on negotiation. Um, sometimes jumping numbers Can uh, throw somebody off a little bit, and you can you can get them to pass on a lower number than maybe they would have already. So I've heard some people say you should always just bid one 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 Um, because if if your opponent is only willing to go to seven and you're willing to go to ten, you don't want to bid nine, right? Um, You you could have bid eight and so why why risk going higher than you needed to and I think there's some validity to that thought you definitely don't want to overbid but at the same time sometimes there are people who are thinking that way and if you jump straight to five they might say "Oh, okay you can have it whereas if they really had if you'd gone by ones they would have worked up to seven or something so it's just worth considering skipping numbers your mileage may vary but I think uh, try it out sometime and uh just being the person pushing out confidence, um, can give you a little bit of a, a boost, I think, sometimes. So um and you know, I think you gotta be careful about that. Like you don't you don't want it to go into territory of being a bully or or um trying to intimidate other people. Um but I think, you know, bidding is a mechanism here and so and being bold is not the same as being bully or intimidating. So uh, there you go okay so that's all that's all my advice except the last thing I'll say is don't forget to have fun remember in any sort of best of three format it really can start to feel like a slog um, if you're not having fun do something else if uh, but I, I think if you can think about even the losses that we all inevitably get as opportunities to learn and grow then uh, then it can stay very very fun Uh, I hope you enjoy. I hope this helps you out and that you'll get out there and forge some geese.